If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to First uh, Peter chapter two. This morning we're in verses eleven and twelve. This is kind of the beginning of a second major section in in Peter's letter. We we finished that first major section last week up through verse ten, uh, and and Peter is now going to begin uh, more and more application, uh, kind of exhortation to us as to how we might live for Jesus Christ in this life. And so this begins that more focused section. Uh, You're you're welcome to remain seated as we read from uh, this portion of God's Word. Uh, You're welcome to use the the Pew Bible in front of you, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Uh, Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. Peter writes... Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, or when they speak against you rather as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord's help? Father, this is your word. Uh, Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So we pray that you would this morning enlighten our our hearts and our minds uh, to see and to believe, to understand and to practice uh, your word as you have preserved it for us throughout the ages. Help us to lay it up in our hearts, to practice it in our lives, to receive it uh, in faith and with love. And we pray, Father, that you would bear the fruit you desire uh, from it in our lives. And we ask in all things that you would help us to see Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. In 1980, uh, the U.S. Olympic hockey team was preparing for uh, a great season in the Olympics that year. They had chosen Herb Brooks as their coach for the year. It was his task to put together the team. And uh, this is kind of at the height of the Cold War, and so they had their eyes set on uh, the Soviets as the, the main competitor, though there were many others in this, uh, in this tournament. And as Coach Brooks gathered his team together in preparation for the Olympics, uh, he gathered the best and the brightest college athletes from across the U.S. and put them on this team to, to train and to be ready for this highest level of competition at the Olympics. Uh, But there was a problem as they got together and began to train with one another. They couldn't quite work together as a team with this common goal of laboring together against whoever their opponents were. And part of the issue was they couldn't work together because they didn't really believe and understand who they were supposed to be. And so uh, you can watch, you can see this played out in the great sports movie Miracle. Uh, This is a great, one of these wonderful, inspiring sports movies. I like this movie. But there's one particular scene. They have this disappointing defeat leading up to the Olympics. And Coach Brooks is just, he's frustrated. He's struggling to try to figure out how to get this team 
to work together. They, they play a, a game in these trials leading up to the Olympics, and, and they lose. It's a disappointing defeat. It's a loss that shouldn't have happened. And so he gathers them up after the game. If any of you played sports, you know uh, what often happens. He made them run suicides on the, on the hockey, on the, what do you call it, the, the rink. Thank you. Again, sports. Uh, Y'all remember these, these uh, grueling things that we called suicides? You know, you run a little bit, come back, run a little further, come back, run a little further, come back. And you just keep doing that. And so he gets them on the rink, and he has them run these suicides, uh, just grueling. They've already played a full game and lost, so they've, they've lost motivation. They're worn out physically. And after each kind of full round, he gets them back at the baseline, and he, and he goes to each player, and he says, tell me your name. Tell me who you play for. He goes through each one, and each one says his name, and then says the college team that he plays for, and they all do it. So he makes them run it again, just worn out. You know, they're like over on the side about to throw up. I mean, it's just awful. And he keeps doing it. Even the other coaches at a certain point are like, dude, I think they get the point. Um, but they didn't get the point. Finally, after one uh, more of these suicide runs, they get back to the line, and he goes to the first player and he says, you know, tell me your name, tell me what team you play for. And the player says his name and he says, I play for the United States. He says, okay, you can go home. They couldn't play together against a common opponent because they didn't understand who they were. And finally, after all of these grueling runs on the rink, they finally understood that they were part of this team, the American team, the, the team for the United States, not their individual college teams. And who they were, understanding that, impacted how they played, how they performed in games. They eventually went on to beat the Soviet Union uh, in the, the semifinals and then beat Finland in the final to win the gold. It's a great story. Go watch the movie. My point in saying all of that is... Peter is doing something similar in this letter. He's again and again establishing who we are as God's people. He's driving home this point. You're embracing an understanding of this identity as those who belong to Jesus. This shapes how you live in this world. And so he's laid out different ways of thinking about our identity. We're elect exiles. We're resident aliens. Uh, we live here, we work here, we raise our children here, all those things that we do here, and yet our ultimate citizenship, our ultimate identity is not here. It's in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the new Jerusalem. We are citizens of heaven uh, from which we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And therefore, our values, the things that we're living for, the, the code of conduct by which we live, all of that belongs to the world that is to come, that has broken in, in this world now. And so he's laid out this identity for us. And here, this morning, he's beginning to kind of get more detailed. How does this identity, as God's people, shape the way that we live in this world? And particularly, uh, as we often interact with uh, neighbors, friends, coworkers, etc., loved ones, um, whose identity is not in Jesus, how, do we, how are we to live in a world that is often unbelieving, that does not embrace the promises of God and the gospel, that doesn't share often this identity in Christ with us? And so we want to look at two main things today. The first, briefly, because we've 
kind of developed it already. And the second, a little more, we'll, we'll park our car and spend a little more time there. The first is who we are. Second is how we should live. Who we are and how we should live. Notice verse 11, who we are. Peter calls them beloved. That's part of your identity. Uh, but particularly, he uses these two words. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Uh, Peter is highlighting here again uh, that we do not find our ultimate citizenship here. In many ways, we're like that old gospel song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Uh, my treasures and my hope uh, are somewhere beyond the blue. I'm messing the lyrics up, but you get the point. Our identity is in Jesus. Our identity is in the world to come. And so Peter's reminding them here right at the beginning, uh, you're sojourners here. You're resident aliens. You're foreigners who are passing through. And part of what that means is that the way that you live will often be at odds with the culture, the society around you. Uh, and there can sometimes be kind of a twin danger among Christians in how we react to that reality. We're here, but we don't ultimately belong here. Sometimes there's the danger of isolationism. We're, we'll just go form our own Christian enclave so that we can keep ourselves um, pure from everybody else. Um, but we'll, we'll be in our own little square and we won't really interact with the world because our goal is to keep ourselves pure, uh, to maintain purity and faithfulness, which is a good goal, uh, but maybe not the way that we're supposed to do it. There's a danger there that Christians can isolate themselves and, and have a hard line us versus them mentality and, and therefore lose witness, lose the opportunity to engage in Christian witness with the world around us when we isolate ourselves. And of course, all, all of you know that that's, it's really impossible to actually carry that out, uh, to fully isolate yourselves. But it's a, it's a danger. We're always trying to find ways to kind of cut ourselves off from the world around us. The other, the other twin in that danger is not isolation, but accommodation, uh, that we will want to kind of fly under the radar so much that we'll just go with the flow, that we'll just accommodate ourselves to the culture and the values around us and maybe be kind of secret Christians. We won't talk about our faith where if we understand kind of the pressure points of how we should live and, and, and what that life ought to look like, we'll just, you know, try to stay neutral and try to, try to go unnoticed. We'll accommodate ourselves to that. And, and Peter's warning against both of those twin dangers here and saying, listen, you are foreigners and strangers here. You don't really belong. And so there's some aspect in which you've got, you've got to stand out. You've got to remember who you are because you've got to be different uh, from the world around you. But how that, what that difference looks like is, how he's going, is what he's going to develop in this next point. So he's reminding us here that our ultimate identity, our ultimate citizenship is not in this world but in the world to come which is broken in to this world through the resurrection of Jesus there is new creation here and now what does that mean what what does that mean for how we ought to live um, as pilgrims and strangers sojourners and exiles what are we supposed to do in relation to the world around us he gives us 
Two commands. Uh, I'm going to change the second one or reword it a little bit so it'll, it'll rhyme and maybe you'll remember it. Uh, we're to abstain and maintain. We're to abstain and maintain. So notice verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We're to abstain from sinful desires of the flesh because we're at war. Notice Peter highlights this internal conflict as kind of the first point of spiritual warfare here. I mean, he'll talk about other things later in the letter. He'll talk about Satan and so forth. But right here, the first place he starts is not something outside of you. It's something inside of you. In order to live out this identity as belonging to God's people, as belonging to Jesus, he says your first point of warfare is going to be these internal passions of the flesh that are waging war against you. And his counsel, his exhortation, his command to us, he urges us to abstain from them. The Apostle Paul puts it slightly differently when he talks about this same idea. He describes it in terms of putting off, like you're taking off filthy, dirty clothes. Put off the desires of the flesh and rather put on the fruit of the Spirit. Put on love and joy and peace and patience. Put on Jesus Christ, Paul says, so that your life reflects what he's like and who he is and his character and his grace and mercy. There's an internal war that Peter here calls the passions of the flesh. I think it's important for us to remember that this is where the battle begins, not outside of you, but within you. If, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, we live in between. Uh, we live in between the blessings of God that, has, that have already come through faith in Jesus Christ and the fullness of those blessings that are yet to come when Christ returns. And that in-between time creates a tension. We want what's good and right and true. And oftentimes we don't do that. And sometimes we want what's not good and right and true, and that's what we do. There's this struggle, there's this internal tension that arises because we are not fully new yet. Jesus is still at work remaking us in his image. And so Peter's calling us to this ongoing putting off, ongoing abstaining from the passions of our flesh. Now, those things are going to be different for each of you in terms of kind of where you struggle particularly. There's, there's a writer named uh, Richard Loveless uh, who wrote a book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And, and he describes kind of how each of us may struggle with different things. Maybe you Maybe your kind of pressure point is your words. You know, maybe you, you're really good at cutting other people down with your words. And as a Christian, you're, you're called to build people up with your words. And so that's, that's your pressure point. He calls it our peculiar flesh. It's kind of a weird way to say it, but I think you get the point. So you've got to think through kind of for yourself, where do I see my most pointed struggle? Uh, where do I see myself being tempted the most, these internal passions, desires of the flesh that are characterized by sinful nature. Maybe you're longing for the approval of others. 
and you're willing to kind of go with the flow and accommodate so that you won't stand out and others will speak highly of you or others will, will like you. Maybe that's where you're pressured. Maybe you uh, struggle with greed and covetousness and you're looking around at everything around you or looking on social media and trolling that and thinking, why isn't my life like theirs? I want what they have and my life is terrible because I don't have those things. You know, we're living in this world that's just promoting that more and more. Uh, maybe you struggle with outbursts of anger and you're easily provoked and triggered to that. Um, uh, maybe your eyes wander where they shouldn't and you follow them and the lust of your, hearts, uh, the lust of your heart gives fruit in sinful uh, ways. I don't know, you know what each of us are dealing with, but we've all, we're all struggling in many different, a variety of ways, I should say. And Peter's encouraging us, he's exhorting us here, he's urging you to abstain from those things because you don't belong here. Because we belong to Jesus, our identity is in him. And so he says, put those things off. Abstain because we're at war. He's reminding us, sin is not your buddy. <laughs> Giving in to sinful desires will never result in joy and, and blessing. It's a warning. I remember one time um, being on an international flight, and you know one of the privileges of flying internationally is when you come back through the airport, you can go to the duty-free shop, and you can buy things without taxes. And uh, one of the friends I was with on this flight um, it was a smoker, and so he thought, I'm going to the duty-free shop so I can get a carton of cigarettes without the extra tax, because, you know, they're expensive. And he came out with, you know, two or three cartons of, of cigarettes, and I, I noticed on one of them, I hadn't, it had been a while since I'd quit smoking, so I hadn't looked at cigarette cartons in a while. But I looked at the carton, and on like one side, it was almost the whole side of it, it had like a skull and crossbones. Have y'all seen this? It's like, warning, this will kill you. Now, some of you are laughing, others are, you know, I know we've got smokers here, don't worry, I'm not saying anything about that, but it's a clear warning. I guess I am saying something about it. It's this clear warning, and it's meant to say, hey, think about what you're doing. Uh, and then you've got to make a choice, so you know, that's up to you. My point is, Peter's giving us this warning. These things are waging war. They're not friendly. Uh, these sinful desires that come up, well, maybe I'll entertain it. Maybe I'll just let it go for a little while. And Peter's saying, don't. It's a conflict. It's a martial conflict. You're at war. Abstain from these things. Put them to death. And now I've made you all uncomfortable, but uh, <laughs> you'll survive. Peter calls us to abstain because we're at war. Uh, we all have, uh, as, as believers, we all have these internal desires of the flesh that still are active. And uh, they're active in a way that it produces conflict. And Peter is telling us, listen to that conflict and abstain from those desires, or as Paul says elsewhere, put them to death. So we're to abstain because we're at war, but we're also called to maintain because you are a window. Abstain because you're at war, maintain because you're a window. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm getting this from verse 12. Verse 11 is kind of that negative command put off, abstain, and then verse 12 is, is more positive. You know, nature abhors a vacuum. You don't just take one thing away and leave it empty. Uh, you replace it. You put on 
uh, godliness and the virtues of the Holy Spirit. Peter says here, keep or maintain your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Um, this word that's translated here, honorable, and then later in the verse is translated as good, good deeds. It's the same word in both places. Uh, the idea here is, is not just something good and honorable, but something beautiful. Something beautiful. Peter's telling us we're to maintain a beautiful way of life because we're called to be windows to the gospel. Your, your life is meant to be the best invitation to others to come to Jesus because your life is meant to be a window through which others can see Christ and the gospel and the beauty of the work of Jesus in you. So maintain a beautiful life because you're a window. I learned this past week a, a good illustration uh, of this. We'll come back in a second to what beautiful life means, but let me just give a, a brief illustration here. For our Reformation party, uh, we I taught this year on the Moravians. Some of, some of you were there. The Moravians were kind of a Lutheran uh, group in Germany in the 18th century. Sent out lots and lots of missionaries over a long period of time, and their their model for missions was that they would go to different places, and everybody had a trade. Everybody had some job that they did. You know, they were a cobbler or a blacksmith or whatever the case may be. And the way that they did missions was they did their job, they they lived their lives as Christians, and they did it in front of other people. That that was the way they evangelized the places where they went. They talked about Jesus, and then they demonstrated the effect of knowing Jesus in their lives, in their workplace. Listen, most of you work with people, right? And if you work closely with somebody, you get a feel for what they believe, and you can see or not see whether that belief matches up with their lives, the way they carry out their conduct. It's a window into the claims that they're making. Uh, and Peter is here telling us, maintain a beautiful life among the Gentiles, among non-believers, because it's through you that they might come to see Jesus. Now, they might be repelled by you, and Peter acknowledges that. They might slander you as evildoers. Jesus acknowledges this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are you. Rejoice when you are persecuted uh, for my name's sake. Because all who came before you experienced the same. When you live for Jesus, others might see you and go, I hate you. And I hate what you're doing. And they might speak all kinds of false things against you. And, and Peter's saying, don't let that stop you from maintaining a beautiful life. Because if anything's going to stop you, it's that. Somebody saying, I hate you. Or you're going to be fired if you live faithfully for the Lord in this job. And so, and so he's reminding us, sometimes living for Jesus appalls people. It's, it's repelling. But other times it's attractive. Other times, even though people may slander you, Peter says, while they observe your good deeds, your beautiful deeds, they might glorify God in the day of visitation. They might see that your profession is true. Now, what do we mean by beautiful here? Um, 
this may be a goofy illustration, but just bear with me for a second. Um, there's a difference between good and beautiful, okay? So think about good like, like this. If I want to build a deck on my house, I want to build it correctly. I want to make the cuts correctly. I want the boards to be the length that they're supposed to be. I want to build it to code. And I can go buy the lumber, make all the cuts, put it together, or pay somebody else to do it. Um, and, and it's done right, okay? You following with me? The angles line up and so forth. I can stand on it and it's held up. It's good. But maybe I, I, I add some iron balusters on the handrail and maybe it's like some exotic hardwood that just is beautiful and somebody comes and puts a finish on it and it's, and it's shiny and it's delightful and, and maybe there's like lights on the steps as you're walking up and maybe it's got a fancy newel post at the bottom of the handrail and all along and maybe it's even got like a built-in hot tub or something. That's good, it's built right, but it's also beautiful, okay? The Christian life is meant to be both good and beautiful, okay? So you might think, we, we might kind of limit this to, I am a rule keeper. I know some of you are rule keepers, and that's okay. But we might limit it to that, right? I'm going to obey the rules. I'm going to be good. And sometimes what that communicates not all the time, sometimes what that communicates to people who don't understand grace is it communicates moralism, that the way to be right with God is to be good. And sometimes we communicate that explicitly, sometimes we communicate that implicitly, sometimes we communicate that uh, without meaning to because we want to please the Lord, we want to do what's right, we want our lives to honor Him, that's important, right? That's the most important thing. But sometimes we do it in a way that makes other people think, I'm good, you're not. And if you want to know what I know and believe what I believe, then you also have to be good like me. And that's moralism. That's saying that the way to be right with God is for you to keep the rules. The deck is built right. You can stand on it, but it's not beautiful. Okay? And Peter is calling us here to something beyond just good. And, and I think, if I can put it this way, the thing that he's calling us to communicate in our, our way of life, our conduct, not just individual actions, but our whole pattern of life, we're called to communicate grace. That our lives are supposed to be a window to the truth of the grace of God at work in Jesus Christ in us. Unbelievers, non-Christians, uh, and, and maybe some, some of you are in that category this morning, um, but I think this is right. Most unbelievers don't read the Bible, but they will read Christians all day long, and they will evaluate what they see in you as believers. And, and one of the things that I think people look for is, does it work? Does their faith, what they claim to believe, does it impact what they're doing? Does it impact their lives in a way that they have a beautiful life? Uh, several years ago, there was a song by a band called uh, Crossfade. 
despite the way the name sounds, not a Christian band, but there was a song by a band named Crossfade uh, called Make Me a Believer. It's the 10th song on their album, 10 minutes, 10 seconds, epic rock song. Uh, and the opening lines of this song say, uh, it asks, starts with a question. Uh, will it make me feel, oh, sorry. Will it make me feel even? Will it make me feel right? Will it solve all my problems? Will it solve my life? Make me a believer. Now, what's, what's the song asking there? It's saying, I want to see if what you're claiming works. Convince me that it's true by showing me that it will do something, that it will be practically effective in my life and make my life better. Now, I heard that song for the first time, and I thought, it's asking the wrong question. Uh, the question is not, does it work? The question is, is it true? And if it's true, then you should believe it, and then you should live in accordance with it. But I've, I've later realized that many times that's often maybe not the ultimate question, but it's the first question that people are asking. Show me that what you believe is true by the way that you live. Show me that it's true in your life. They want, they want to see that as kind of the first entryway into embracing the truth not because it works primarily, but because it is true and therefore calls for our submission of heart and mind and everything. Peter is here saying, others are watching your life to see if it works, to see if, if what you claim is real, if it's making an impact. So live a beautiful life so that even though they might slander you, sometimes they keep watching, they keep observing. They see your good deeds in the face of opposition and hardship even. And maybe on the day of judgment, there will be some who glorify God because they were converted through seeing your beautiful life exhibited uh, here and now. Your faith in Christ put in action. Are you a window to the gospel? Let me give you three brief uh, examples or three kind of ways of being a window to the gospel. And there's, there's many more, but these are just three uh, one way to be a window to the gospel uh, believer is to have unswerving hope through hardship. Unswerving hope through hardship. The early Christians were known for this. Some pagans were converted because they saw Christians dying for their faith and they saw them dying with joy. They gladly gave their lives for the one who had given his life for them. They had a hope that was not anchored to whether things went well here because they had a hope anchored in the fact that Jesus had died for them and that Jesus had risen from the dead for them and their sins were forgiven and they were accepted and loved by God because of what Christ has, had done and that grace had impacted their lives in such a way that they willingly gave themselves for the sake of their faith, for the sake of the name of Jesus. They didn't compromise at the end. They were faithful through to the end. We've seen this among our own people, suffering physically and yet full of joy because of the knowledge of God's love in Christ. That's a window to the gospel. That's a window to grace because it says, my hope is not diminished by suffering but increased because Jesus is all in all. Unswerving hope through suffering can often be a window to the gospel. Uh, second example, forgiveness. Forgiveness can be a window to the gospel. 
Um, Christians are called to forgive, to forgive their enemies. Jesus highlights this in his own forgiveness of those who crucified him. Uh, he calls us to forgive those who sin against us and says that a heart of unforgiveness is often evidence that we have not experienced forgiveness ourselves. Forgiveness is a window to the gospel. It does not create a situation in which you should be a doormat and always be stepped upon by others. That's, we often confuse that with forgiveness. But we are called to forgive. We are called to trust God to forgive our enemies uh, and extend grace to them. Have you experienced grace from God and forgiveness of your sins? If you have, are you showing in your own life the powerful and unique love of Jesus uh, who calls us to follow him in his love and to do good to those even who mistreat us? Forgiveness can often be a window to the gospel, not holding on to grudges, holding them against people, beating them up because of it, but freely trusting God. And, and letting go of the, the ammunition that you may hold against one another. Forgiveness can be a window to the gospel. And finally, unselfish sacrifice for the sake of others. Unselfish sacrifice for the sake of others. This can be a window to the gospel. Uh, Tim Keller tells a story about a man in his congregation in Manhattan years ago who was converted, came to Christ, and was working at kind of one of these tall buildings in downtown New York City for a marketing firm. He had kind of risen up in the ranks of this particular company, was kind of a manager of others, uh, and had long tenure there. And one of his employees working underneath him on a particular project had um, committed a significant mistake on the job that they had. And you know, these are jobs that are worth lots and lots of money to these companies. And this particular employee, she had not worked there very long. She didn't have the same tenure that he did. And so she pretty much knew because of her mistake, she was going to get canned from this job. That's just kind of how things work. This is a highly competitive uh, place of business. People are always kind of stepping over each other to get to the top. That's the marketplace in many ways. Uh, and so she knew she had committed this mistake. It was her fault. She was going to get fired, and she goes to talk to her manager about it. And he says to her something along these lines. He said, I'll take responsibility for your mistake. I'll make it my own, and I'll take the hit for you. Because if you bear the responsibility for this, you're going to be fired, but I think you deserve a second. I'm going to give you a second chance. I'll take the hit. I'll take responsibility for it. Um, and she said, why, why in the world would you do that? Because the, the culture there was not at all like that. Backbiting, you know, stabbing in the back, all that kind of stuff. That was, that was how it worked in the corporate world. She said, why in the world would you do that? And he said, well, I, I believe the gospel. I'm a Christian. And the gospel teaches me that God has loved me, not because I've been good enough not because I've never made a mistake, but he loves me by grace. And he gave me his son, Jesus. And Jesus took the hit for me. Jesus stood in my place. Jesus bore my sins on the cross and paid the full penalty for them. And he rose again from the dead so that I could be set free. And he calls me to imitate his love in my life. And so I'll take the hit. This woman showed up at Tim Keller's church the next week and said, what in the world are y'all doing here? 
I've never seen anything like this. It was a window to the gospel that this man unselfishly sacrificed for the sake of others. Now, he, he was pretty certain he wouldn't get fired uh, if, when he took the hit. But you never know. He was willing to take the risk for the sake of this employee. That's a window to the gospel. And oftentimes, those windows are the ways that other people who don't yet embrace Jesus can see Jesus in you and see something that's not just good but beautiful and begin to see, I want that. I need that. And that's grace that we see in one another. Let me conclude by saying this. Um, as our children were growing up, it was always important to us to make sure that our words mattered to them more than the words of friends or the words of the world. That's particularly more important for those of you raising children uh, in the world of social media where they've got maybe a thousand more voices entering their, their heads and shaping their identity now than you know, 19 years ago or whatever. But it was important for us that, that the way we talked to our children and taught them about who they are uh, in the light of the gospel, that, that was the dominant voice that shaped their identity more than anything else. Peter is doing that for us now, saying, you're beloved, you're pilgrims and strangers, you're elect exiles, you're chosen and precious in the sight of God, you're living stones being built into this spiritual house. Uh, you are God's own treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, all of these beautiful things he has said. That identity is meant to shape us. So that on the one hand, we abstain from those things that wage war against the soul and strive for holiness in our lives and put sin to death. And on the other hand, at the same time, we seek to live a life that is beautiful, that provides a window to the gospel so that as Jesus uh, says in the Sermon on the Mount, Though you may be persecuted, let your light shine so that others may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me?